Hey campers, welcome back to another exciting episode of Camp Ramon. I'm Chris Price, and you know what? Tori and I recently have been trading off being sick. Tori's not feeling well. Uh, I've got our boy Mikey Stibbs here. What's up, Mike? Man, life is good. Lots of crazy stuff going on, man. You and Tori interviewed Gary Wayne, and I said Tori and I have been trading off being sick because the day no it was a couple of days before that interview i don't know if it was a stomach flu mike or food poisoning but i was down for the count and i was really bummed that i missed getting getting to talk to gary wayne because he's so awesome um so I'm, i'm looking forward to listening to to that interview when it drops i had gary react to the tucker carlson uh nephilim incident from his perspective uh, we talked a lot about the New World Order. Uh, we talked Bible, of course. We talked Revelation and how some of this stuff plays out um, from a biblical, obviously, always from a biblical perspective. But we took some, you know, some verses, and I asked him some questions on that stuff. Of course, Gary gives gives an A one interview all the time. Chris, before we get into this Gary Wayne interview. I'm sure you heard about the Miami alien Nephilim encounter. What do you think about that? <laughs> oh man, what do I think about that? That is a that's a loaded question, my friend. So do I think it's do I think a portal was opened and that some some Nephilim creatures came through? I have a I have a tough time. Um buying that one uh i think if people did see some nine or ten foot tall creatures which we don't know there's there's some videos out there they're they're so fuzzy that it's one of those things where it's kind of like a rorschach test if i'm saying that right you could see what you want to see you know if you want to see nephilim you see nephilim if you want to see three guys walking next to each other it's so fuzzy like i don't know you you see what you want to see with that. So I'll say this. If people did see those creatures, I think it's more likely that it's some sort of like psyop where they're using like drone hologram technology. Um, that's if they actually saw them and that part of it's not just made up. Um, was it a portal where they actual Nephilim? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Um, so, uh, you know, um, speaking of our our buddy, uh, Jason Pillow, who I know, you know, we've got uh, a short interview with him and AC about a woman that uh, that they rescued. And we kind of played a part in that. Um, I was looking at Facebook this morning and, and Jason has confirmed with some people that he knows they're in law enforcement down in Florida that all of those cops had to apparently sign NDAs. Um, they were pressured into signing NDAs or they'll be fired. Um, so does that mean it's because it was Nephilim? I don't know. I think, you know, you, when you and I were talking earlier, you had mentioned that it could have been a terrorist threat that was happening at the time. And so maybe to not incite panic there, you know, they're, they're having these guys sign an NDA. I don't know, but I don't think it was anything that was actually paranormal if anything, it's probably a psyop, some sort of you know psychological operation. Yeah. So that's kind. Of, those are kind of my thoughts. Yeah. 
Chris, let's uh, let's jump into this video here. You were sick, so it's just me and Tori, but Gary Wayne is awesome. Legit scientists right now are positing that we live in a simulation. I feel like a lot of stuff is going on in the world that's brought up a lot of these conversations, even in our last couple episodes, just with UAP disclosure and, you know, the Nephilim agenda that we always come back to. The world largely rejects their message and treats them as hostile extraterrestrials who must be stopped at any cost. Gary, how have you been? All things considered, pretty good, considering I'm still recovering from COVID, and I've got, I guess, a version of what they call long COVID now, so I'm kind of up and down every day, but still doing, uh, I think I'm getting a little bit better, so, and I'm staying, still staying busy. I just don't do the, like, 12 or 14-hour shifts, right? So <laughs> <laughs> I go for as long as I can, and when my head sort of gets a little bit groggy or I get tired, then that's enough. That's it. That's enough research for the day. Your your new book, I heard that it has a release date. It does. And I have an update for people who are uh, following that closely, particularly for people who have pre-ordered the book. So the original release date was put out for March 12th in late October, early November, and kind of a long sort of ways out based on what I've seen happen before with particularly with my first book and it didn't take anywhere nearly that long, but what has gone on is there's been a paper shortage and there is a printer shortage and there is a labor shortage. And so it was in the queue since, Oh geez, I would say late September, early October, probably more like late September went into the queue for printing. And if you want to get it up on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and, particularly with Amazon is, is you have to have a release date that you can guarantee. Otherwise the, the large retailers are going to punish you significantly. So they went for March 12th to be safe because they don't just punish the author. They punish the whole publishing company and all the authors that come along with that. So I was talking to uh, my publisher about a week and a half ago and it's out of the queue and it's at the printers. So that means it's going to beat the publishing date by quite a bit. I still don't have a firm date, but I'm hoping late December, early January will beat it. And as soon as the books are printed, I'll get my inventory. So people who are pre-ordering with me will get the first books unless they decide uh, Amazon is going to get theirs first and they want to start selling it and shipping it before the release date. So there's still no ability to pre-book on the Kindle version. Um, but I, I understand that that's not unusual, even though it, they've had the digital version for Kindle for two months now. Uh, they won't put that up until uh, closer to the release date and maybe not even until the print date. So it seems to me there's still more of a push to push the print than the digital. Uh, but there will be uh, a Kindle version, which is uh, to be reassured. And I'll get that link for the Kindle version up on my website as soon as I can get a link that's active and they have it listed. So, so that's what's going on. And I have up on my website for people who are interested in it, you go to the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, Genesis 6 with the number 6conspiracy.com. And on that website, there's a generous excerpt for book one of all 98 chapters. 
and also for book two of all 84 chapters. And even though it's a generous excerpt, it's still a small drop in the bucket as to how much information is in there. It's just designed to sort of maybe get your interest and it's not all the juicy parts. There are, I mean, it is loaded with information and uh, you can't put all of that into a small, you know, 300 word excerpt, but 300 words is not a small excerpt, but I like to have people understand what the chapter is about and what the book is about. And then if they want to uh, order, you can order from my website. There's a page for, on both books, there's a page for Canada, there's a page for the US, and there's a page for anywhere else in the world or overseas, as I like to call it. So you just go to the that page to order a signed copy from me. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to order a Kindle edition or go to uh, somewhere else to buy the book, I've got the Kindle link up there. I and I will have for the new book as well when it's ready. And I have a link over to barnesandnoble.com, over to amazon.com and amazon.ca. So if you're wanting to find out information about the book and you want to buy a book, that's the easiest, fastest way to get a hold of the book. Now, there's a sales force out there, so I'm looking for it to be on shelves in stores. I just don't know who's going to pick it up. Um, but uh, the last book you know was on shelves it may not be on many shelves after eight or nine years out there uh, uh, to, you know right now but i would imagine if they're bringing in book one they're probably going to bring in some book two to if you wanted to support your local bookstore and you can order it through bookmasters or the store can which is the distributor for deep river publishing so if you want to special order it and uh, get it from support your local bookstore you can do that too yeah Dude, that is that is very very cool. I'm very excited about it. I I reference I use your book as like an encyclopedia when I make videos and I need to reference you know secret societies or something in there, and I want to get kind of be able to pick your brain without talking with you. Um, of course, we always give give the nod to your book, but it is it is a really good piece of work i'm not just blowing smoke um a lot of us really really like it it's it's something where we can read multiple times and reference throughout you know the fringe journey every time i every time i think of of gary wayne i think of not the one world order but i think of the nephilim world order <laughs> and i mentioned to you that even tucker carlson in passing said the word Nephilim in an interview with Roseanne Barr. And can you can you explain to us and take your time of how the Nephilim world order is actually coming to be right here and right now? Like it's not, yeah. you know, it's not some sort of, you know, it's it's happening, but it's not a hundred years into the future. It's going down right now. I, am I right on that? Yeah, and you can actually say we're probably in it right now too but not full blown so one of the things i learned about the occult and the bloodlines and secret societies is they have allegories upon allegories and everything is chosen whether it's an acronym or a word that they want to use in a metaphorical way or symbolism to just not give one meaning but many meanings so when they talk about the new world order you know, that's a term that's been around for over 100 years. Um, and it's the order that was they were trying to get even in the time of President Wilson, 
They were talking about a new world order because of World War One, and certainly again after World War Two. And it's really the superficial term for one world government. So when the Bushes talked about a thousand points of light in their new order speeches, both junior and senior, and actually junior even used it at uh, senior's funeral, that's the spark of the divine for the people who have the gene of ISIS, the gene, the LB gens, the Julia gens, the Elvin gens, whichever gens that they have, that they're trying to collect for that new world order so that they can sort of help bring about a an evolvement or a vibration as the new age would sort of talk about it into a new level of godhood or going back to the old demigod status um, because they can't offer godhood in the spiritual realm so where i was going with that idea of that world government is is who is running it and so if you look at things that, that can have several meanings that was kind of odd to me that they decided to keep new world order because it's not so new anymore yeah. <laughs> and it has different sort of incarnations but it's also if you look at it from the nephilim world order i mean the nephilim and the raphaim and i talked a lot about the raphaim uh, as being sort of the inheritors to that ancient nephilim world order that was before the flood that the globalist forces are trying to rebuild. And we might know that through the allegorical lens of Francis Bacon, who wrote The New Atlantis, about this one world government that had a religion that was in perfect harmony with science. <laughs> and so that was their idea of what happened in the first time in the golden age, in the time of Atlantis, that was trying to impose a Nephilim world order. And people aren't familiar with the Atlantean story, Poseidon marries Clido. Poseidon is an Olympia god, and Clido is a human female and creates 10 giant kings, 10 Nephilim kings, 10 hero kings, as they're understood in the Greek mythology. And these are giants, and they have 10 parts to their empire. And so they want to recreate that new Atlantis, as Bacon talks about, or the new age, as the new age talks about. And that's why you have like the Club of Rome or the United Nations who have divided the world up into 10 groups of nations. That's the model that they're foreshadowing that they want to bring about in this new world order. And it's led by the bloodlines of the Nephilim from the occult perspective. Um, although I would argue from a second incursion, which I lean to more than... A survival of giants that it's the raphaim bloodlines that they're taking these genealogies back to so all of the royales and i talk about rex deus or rex deus in the first book which means kings of god i'll expand on that into the new book about royale and royale is old french for king and al is for is a transliteration of el as in a god or an angel and it could be IL or ILU in uh, Mesopotamian uh, transliterations or AL in some of the Ar Arabic transliterations. And also in the word Baal, which is a key word for the royals and for the secret societies and the Gnostics, that means the Lord God. And they'll be using that Lord God overlay 
as part of how they're going to usurp the Bible for their own interpretive purposes in, in the end time. So they are the kings of God. And the royals are dynastic by definition. The royals keep genealogies, and they only intermarry for the most part amongst royals to keep their bloodlines pure. And they track those genealogies all the way back to what they would say the original patriarchal Nephilim or Raphaim, and to a celestial godfather, part of the celestial mafia, the fallen angels, also called the Nephilim. And I introduced that term in a in an explained way in the new book as well because people confuse nephilim with nephilim and, and nephilim uh, is the root word for nephil and nephilim and it means to fall so when you have a verse in isaiah 14 where it's talking about hail el son of the morning that is uh hail el ben shakar and in the King James Version, it says Lucifer, the god of the Freemasons and the god of the Gnostics, as you know, an Italian word inserted for a Hebrew word into the English language. Nothing odd there, except that <laughs> we may want to you know, re at least replace it with Satan if we don't want to say Hail El. I, I mean, I get maybe not using a fallen angel's name. Uh, or, but you know, when you have Gabrielle or Michael, it's translated directly as a name versus its meaning. So one would think they would have been consistent or at least gone to, to Satan versus Lucifer, but I'm down another rabbit trail. So when you see that word, he fell from heaven in Isaiah 14, that's the Hebrew word Nephal. And he's the chief God of the fallen angels the Nephilim, I am being the male plural, or the fallen ones, which is where that term comes from. And they are the godfathers of the Nephilim, which is an extended word. So it has an association with Nephilim as its source and root, but it's not exactly the same meaning. So the Nephilim are demigods as a full, as spurious offspring versus being the spiritual gods who take a physical form in the physical world to create these physical demigods. And so the Nephilim of the Shemaim, the heavenly ones, Shema being heaven in the singular, is are these godfathers that everybody as a king will take their genealogy back to. So they receive that divine right to rule and always have. And that's why they've been able to control much of the world. But now they want to have it not as competing empires, but as one geopolitical force under 10 kings for that seventh empire, uh, the fifth empire of Daniel, for the end time that they're, that they're trying to bring about. And that the, uh, <clears throat> the, Nephil, or the Nephilim are the invisible ones, who have spurious offspring who are the visible ones, as the Bible speaks about, that we fight against both, and they provide the authority and that divine right to rule, as you guessed it, the mighty gibbering King James used as one of his major propaganda pieces that he ruled with the divine right to rule, and as all the kings believe that they had that authority. So you roll that forward today, and you have this right of an inheritance ritual of kingship that's been passed down since the time of the Nephilim uh, before the flood and the Rephaim at the assembly of gods at Mount Hermon um, as the Ugaritic text places it with the uh, 
uh, not only the assembly of the gods at the top, but also the assembly of the Datanu or Datanu, which are the giant tribes uh, who are the visible ones and the kings that are that are ruling that are at that council. They receive their divine right to rule from them. And so King Charles III swore his oath to a god, not the god of the Bible, but to a specific patriarchal godfather wow. as in one of the celestial mafia. And so they do things in plain sight, but you have to understand that this as this would not be done as a monotheist ritual. Right. It's just done with the gloss of monotheism so that they can honor and receive the authority to rule from the specific God. So he would trace his bloodlines back to one of the Balim of the Council of Gods. If people aren't familiar with the Council of Gods, I go through that in the new book as well. Because once you introduce the Nephilim of the Shemaim, you got to sort of get into that. And so, biblically, we get that in Psalms 82. And if people who have read Kaiser's or Dr. Heiser's work, they'll be familiar with that. And I go, I haven't read his work, but I, from what I understand, what he wrote and talked about, I'll go quite a bit further in that understanding, both in Hebrew and how it connects into other parts of prophecy and history. So um, this is the council of the gods that Satan sits above, mm -hmm. right? He's the one, he's the prince of the world, the god of this world. And you have these, this council of the gods and you have in Deuteronomy 32, you have the 70 nations that they're going to govern. And the 70 nations are numbered by the patriarchs in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles and by the number of Adam's sons before the flood. So there are 70 nations before the flood, 70 nations after the flood, even though we don't get the 70 sons of Adam, Adam listed, Deuteronomy says there was, so I accept that there was. And that each god of that council would have been ahead of a particular nation and as those 70 nations spread across the world from babel they would have a specific god assigned to that country and a complete throne room just as you would have at the assembly of the gods being duplicated and just as the visible king and queen would be that visible throne room on earth as well now if they expanded that nation's territory let's say like in modern understanding if england created uh, started the united states or canada or australia you would have that god overseeing all of those but then you would have a god and a whole throne room underneath that hierarchy assigned to each of those countries as well but sourcing back to the original nation and i'm not saying england was an original nation i'm just talking about in sort of in modern parlance, but, you know, we can get an idea from, you know, where the, the, the people of the 70 people, 70 patriarchs went from uh, the time of Babel as to what those main nations are and what those expanded branches would be. And they would report right back up that hierarchy. So I'll cover off and redefine the angelic hierarchy in the new book as well. Um, uh, it's not that much different than the standard hierarchy but i'll give you all the names of the bible in in the in the bible and their positions and where they fit in the hierarchy so you've got three different levels but you've got four different columns and two belong to one of the columns and just to sort of summarize it 
And you have to understand, or you don't have to understand, um, it's good to sort of understand that the fallen angels counterfeit everything that's in heaven. Mm. And so their hierarchy looks the same. Okay. So it's just a counterfeit. So one would presume that with the 70 nations, there'd be a loyal angel that was assigned as well, but in different sort of ways. And they're not really involved to, to this point in time. So Do when we... we talk about, sorry, I got off track. So if we got, so when you talk about the new world order, the Nephilim world order, it's reporting back through these royal bloodlines even to this day, but they want to cement those 10 families as being antichrist sort of wannabes until the anti uh, the end time anti and and end time anti antichrist comes at the midpoint of the last seven years and so if we want to know what's going on in the world today that's the jockeying of positioning that's going on let me let me ask you this gary is there is there any way for us to know what god king charles was referring to like do we do we have a way to trace that all the way back to the specific godfather yeah we have we have a a, a few ways of doing it we may not be able to get it you know him back to a specific one but when we look at the coat of arms and it used to be you know on a standard sort of flag that they would carry wherever that they went and with the heraldry that's in it it is a taciturn communication between other royales who they are who they come from who they've ennobled their bloodlines with and uh, who their godfathers would be so typically on a lot of the coats of arms you have very odd at times animals yeah so you have like eagles uh you have bulls at times you have um unicorns uh you have lions and these all represent fallen angelic beings and they would have loyal ones still in heaven as well but not the ones that they're representing are the ones who were rebelled so you know if you look at a lion um you know, you've got gods in prehistory like Nergal, uh, who's in the Bible, and he's depicted as a lion-faced god and a god of war. Uh, you, you know, you might look at Mahis or uh, Sekhmet or Bast as lion-type gods in Egyptian um, mythology and history. And they all produce spurious offspring, and they would have looked just like them. So, if a seraphim angel produces uh, a serpent face, as a, with a serpent face would produce peop, uh, giants that look like them, which is why we have so much serpentine imagery in in uh, the kingships. Then, if a lion angel reproduces, then it's going to look like them. So, dragons are another typical, unusual. <laughs> figure on coats of arms that's going back to a seraphim angel but who does a lion go back to well there's a group of one one of the group of four watchers archangels ophanim seraphim and cherubim are the four groups and the cherubim have four faces they have one of a bull 
or an ox. They have one of a lion. They have one of an eagle or a bird. And they have one of a human. And when the cherubim take a physical form on the physical earth, they would take one of those faces. So if they reproduced, they would produce, like in the lion case, the lion men of Moab as uh, a post-Diluvian recreation versus the Ermalu that were in Sumeria before the flood. Hmm. Um, and if you have, uh, an, have a raven or an eagle, you would have uh, a depiction of the single-faced eagle ones in Sumeria known as the Anunnaki. And in some of the reliefs, you see these eagle angels with wings um, some people would call them a different bird. You could call them a vulture. You could call them falcon, whatever term you want to use. It's the bird sort of look. And then you see that same depiction also with a human head and wings. So again, that's the same figure only appearing with the human face and dark hair, which where the dark hair giants would come from, just as the lion ones. And with, with, with the, uh, Eagle ones, you have giants in Southeast Asia that are known as the Tengu. And if you Google Tengu, T-E-N-G-U, G-U, you're going to see these warriors and priests that were created by the Tengu gods. And they look just like, uh, just like, uh, Nephilim with, with only in this case, you have a, a bird head. And also in the, Popoville, you have the Zibelba, which are owl-faced demigods, and then the house of Kamazots, which is uh, the house of the bat. Wow. And if you Google Kamazots, you get a depiction of what Batman's outfit looks like. <laughs> so there's obviously some sort of connection there as well. And so like Gilgamesh is a dark-haired giant. And... Uh, you know, he's probably from the cherubim line with that sort of dark hair. So when we look at the coat of arms, then, um, when we look at a unicorn, that's going back to a special kind of angelic being. It's not only is it this giant horse in mythology that the Nephilim kings and the Rephaim kings rode into battle, and I cover this off in the new book as well, um, but it's also understood, particularly with the single horn as the allegory, as a sort of a third eye and a connection receiving knowledge from heaven, from a special type of angel watcher. And in the occult, it's representative of an angelic being as well. So now when you look at, to give an understanding of what I'm talking about, if you look at, let's say, Apollo's chariot, or Zeus's chariot, they have these unicorns that are flying with their chariot. And if you look at the vision that we see in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10, and God's throne in the vision, um, and as the Psalms also intersects with it, his chariot is pulled by cherubim. And so they're do if you follow what I was saying a little bit earlier about the fallen angels counterfeiting everything, their thrones of God, they would represent it in a counterfeit way. And that is an allegory for a cherubim. And the cherubim were thought to be not only warrior angels, but also had special knowledge that they would deliver directly uh, for gods, for 
God from the throne and the polytheist version for the gods. Wow. Well, yeah, so I was going to, what I was going to ask, um, I mean, in regards to that, you know, I, I know you've said it before that these, these different, like, you know, houses, they fight against each other. They're, 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 you know, even though they're part of the fallen, they're still at war with one another. Am I, am I right on that? Absolutely. They are, they're rivals. Um, and there was an interesting TV series and movie series put out by Hollywood um, called Highlander. And it was from sort of the fairy allegory as opposed to the dragon allegory that I talk about in book one. And so these are immortal beings that are waging wars with swords and they're taking heads of the giants, right? And there can only be one that's going to rule the earth at the end. And that's kind of the allegory of what goes on with these royal bloodlines is that, yes, there's going to be 10 kings, but eventually there's going to be one king that rules the world. And so they have these rivalries and they all want to be that one family line that's going to have that dynastic worldwide family to, to reign for their millennium. And so they're all trying to position for that. They have been from day one. So even though they're working directionally to bring about the end time and always have been and have been trying to bring about an Antichrist type figure all the way through, through the beast empires, there's an ordained time. And they know that they're getting closer, so the bloodlines are going to resurface and be really positioning to be probably part of the Ten Kings and then eventually the number one king uh, that's going going to um, rule the world. So that rivalry explains a lot of what's happened in the last 150 years. So, you know, before World War One, there was basically a dynastic Nephilim world order. And then what happened with World War One? things started to change. And uh, the secret societies of the West and the Gnostics and the royal families who run the secret societies at the top end of the Thelemic tree, they created something called social masonry. Hmm. And that was the basis for people like Lenin and Trotsky and all of the socialistic writers that came along. And when they saw a weakness at the end of World War One, they put that virus into play into Russia. And so they took out the Putyanin bloodline. People understand them as the Romanovs, but the Romanovs are a junior offshoot that took over through intermarriage in the 1600s. It's like the Plantagenet is a junior offshoot of the Anjou through intermarriage. So in the hierarchy, an important bloodline, but slightly sort of lower in that hierarchy. The Putyanin was established by Vladimir the Great in about 1000 AD in Moscow, which is why Putin honors Vladimir the Great with a statue, um, because he's the one who established the Putyanin bloodline hmm. and czarship in, in Moscow. That Putyanin bloodline originated in Kiev, as part of the Scythian Raphaim bloodlines. And you can start to understand what's going on with that piece of information as Putin saying he is, and he put this out in newspapers in the early 2000s that 
he is a bloodline of the Putyanin and how that would happen because his name comes out of nowhere uh, in about 1850. Uh, his grandfather shows up and there's no genealogy before that. There's no Putyanin name any or Putin name anywhere. And what they did in the Ukrainian tradition there is, is if a royal had a child outside of marriage, he, he wouldn't receive the full name and wouldn't receive all the riches and inheritance would still lead a decent life. And so they would give part of the name. And that's where Putin believes he gets the Putin part of the Putyanin part of his name. And then his father moved at the time of World War One, maybe just before or just after, uh, to St. Petersburg, which is how he ends up in Russia. And so he's trying to put together that old Putyan and bloodline. You have Xi, who comes from the Shah XIA dynasty bloodlines that was created by the dragon creator gods that created all of the dynasties in China, who's in power now. And Shah was the Western bloodline of the of the Shah dynasty, or the Lees would be more the Eastern name for it. Wow. So let me let me ask you this. So so as they're kind of, you know, warring for that spot to rule the world, to be the Highlander, so to speak, do does the does in your view, does the Bible give us insight into which king is going to actually win? I mean, not maybe not specifically, but the region of I mean, does is there any insight there? The, the only insight we're going to get on that is through the prophecies right so if he's going you know you're going to have 10 kings that come as an extension out of the roman empire as daniel 2 and daniel 7 talk about but what's interesting is daniel 8 provides a little bit more detail that almost seems to connect uh the end time antichrist with uh the person who would become in that prophecy, Alexander the Great, or at least come from that beast empire in that region. Now, that's pretty similar land area as Rome, which is it's part of the four parts of that empire that splits up after uh, and rules, but splits in four different uh, sections um, after Alexander's death. But it's a very similar sort of grouping. So okay. you might say... In, into into uh, Greece, but it doesn't say he's a bloodline of Alexander, but he's a figure like Alexander. And in the Alexander mythos, he's the offspring of a human female and a moon, as a, as he shows up as a serpent to have sex with his with his mother and produces him in that royal bloodline. So he looks at himself as a nephilim as well, whether or not. That's just mythology that's around it. He would look at him as 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 having either started a new dynasty that way, or it was just a, a mythology to increase the pedigree of his original royal bloodline. Wow, wow. So, 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 what do you think? What do you think is happening right now? Is this? I mean, because I agree with you. You know, we pretty much are in a one-world government. You know, or we're we're headed there very quickly. Does it just keep consolidating down into 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 you know less people, less people having power? Yeah, but it's gonna it's gonna take some wars and catastrophes to to make that take place. So, you know, look for some of these uh, ten kings to build their empire and take by force countries. 
So you can see Xi, you could see Putin doing that. Um, and also you're going to see alliances really start to form if things get really rocky in terms of wars so that they have protection and economic protection. So you see groups of nations in some political alliances, you've got NATO alliances, you've got trading alliances, but I would see things moving more tightly into that groupings of nations as things move on. And we've only seen, you know, the war in, in the Ukraine and how it's disrupted the whole thought process of what's going on in the world. And you almost see just with that small war, you almost see a splitting up of an East and a West in terms of five Kings on each side. Right. So, I mean, you've got China and you've got Russia uh, and you've got the, uh, the Persians between uh, not only Iraq and Iran, but also the Persians who started uh, India as well. And India is not taking a position and more or less supporting the, the Eastern one because they get all of their, they get all of their energy from China for the most part. Germany's going to have to go the same way. So you might see Germany and and um, Turkey um, assemble together. And you start to look at that, and you're getting a lot of names that are in that World War III GOG war mm. uh, popping up. And so that war is at the time of the Ten Kings. So you're going to see groupings like that. Uh, she'll uh, start to come together and other groups as well. So I'm going to interrupt this interview just for a second. Because of you, the Camperman listener, a girl is free from human trafficking today. I want you to listen to this quick story and then we're going to get right back into Gary Wayne's interview. Jason, I had you and AC on a special edition of the Camperman podcast a few months ago where you guys were explaining about your new ministry. You were talking about how you can help real people in real danger that are caught up in human trafficking. And after that show, we did have some people donate some money. And because of that, we were able to assist in getting a girl set free. Could you tell us that story? We got contacted about a girl in the Middle East uh, who had been targeted by a terrorist sect in the area and uh, was going to be forced to be married into, you know, their little sect, another imam or Muslim uh, in that area. Uh, so I'm going to let AC uh, handle it in full details because he knows everything and what it's going to take to keep her safe, protected. So I'm going to let him divulge what details he can and fill you in on the entire story. Just like human trafficking, everybody kind of knows it exists, but it's always shoved back into the recesses of our memory because we don't really know what to do about those uh, forced marriages, forced conversions, uh, and which most of the time end very badly. So because we don't know what to do, we just, we say, look, let God handle that. Well, most of the time, God then reciprocates and says, well, no, I need you to do something. And this was one of those cases. We have our first case of forced marriage that this particular operative in the Middle East brought me and basically said, AC, you have 24 hours to respond. So the case was, uh, he found this girl and she was being she was kidnapped from her Christian family 
uh, she was coming home from school. And when they got her, they were uh, using the strong arm ta tactics that the Muslim extremists use against Christian families, the minority Christian families in the area, to extract money and ransom and bribery and all kinds of things out of them, uh, of which these people live in all the time. And in this case, they snatched her, their daughter and demanded ransom. And what we did was we paid that ransom, but also, or actually we paid the parents more than they would have paid. And we paid the rescuers what was needed to get to the girl to snatch her away from her kidnappers. Um, it was a 19-hour trip driving through the night, through the day, through the night. Uh, they even sent me videos of them traveling <laughs> in their, their van in the Middle East to get to her. Uh, they sent me pictures of them stopping to eat, and their heads were drooping down from, from exhaustion. And they kept driving and driving until they got to her, and they rescued her. And now she's doing well, and she's put in a very safe position, a safe situation. And she has the opportunity to get back to her home. But better yet, we're, we're probably going to be asked later on to help her family uh, relocate as well because her family will continually be under surveillance and attack from this Muslim extremist group. So your listeners and viewers need to know that this is really happening in real time. It is happening on a hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands case basis. It is not an isolated thing. It is happening all the time. And we are doing something about it, digging in our own pockets, if need be, whatever it takes, in the emergency triage level response or reaction. So that's what happened. We got her out, got her safe. And the next step is probably to try to get her family to safety as well. Now, the really cool part is, is we could do this again. Please consider going to ArchangelMinistries91.com and donating every little bit helps. Until next time, God bless. You know, I, I got a question for you, though, regarding, you know, the One World Order and all of this stuff. And it it, it boggles, it, it keeps boggling my mind, but I want to say it's like Revelation, it's in Revelation 18, maybe I'm in 19, but it was where it says that the 10 kings hate the beast or they hate the whore the the lady that rides on the beast Babylon yeah yeah they hate her why yep. why do they hate her and they want to they want to overcome her and get rid of her right they want to get rid of the babylon religion right they are jealous of her power and jealous of her wealth so the 10 kings don't come together until babylon come together babylon we need to understand as a uh, larger entity uh, so we get a better idea. And just before I explain that, the Ten Kings will hand their power over to Antichrist, who will destroy Babylon, as recorded in Revelation 17. And we're starting to see some of the detail that's recording the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 14 in the summary of the last three and a half years. And we get the full summary of the destruction of, or the full details of the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18. So what we know about Babylon is that it is a city, because Revelation says it's a city nine times. So it's a specific city. We need to understand that. We know it's a religion because 
it's discussed in a mysterious sort of way as in a mystical religion. It's the mystery religion, mysterion, as you take that back to Greek and has uh, initiatory uh, rituals, oaths, stuff like that. So it's, and, and the allegories of, of adultery and prostitution is, are the allegories of polytheist religions that were described uh, as what Israel would do when they backslid into polytheism. So we know Babylon is a religion and it's the daughter or, and being, as it comes down in the beast empires, it's called the daughters of Babylon in the Old Testament allegory. And Babylon comes from the root word Babel uh, out of Hebrew. And uh, so it is the religion that Nimrod had <laughs> reestablished at uh, Babel and set up an archetypical end time scenario with as an antichrist figure under one um, religion by having all of the Noahites there. And so we need to understand it as this religion and that if we understand the beast empires and I cover them off um, as they connect back to the Raphaim after the flood, that they're an extension of the royal bloodlines, that each of those beast empires, Egypt, uh, Assyria, uh, Persia and Medes, uh, Greece, uh, Rome, and the end time empire will have the same beast religion, hmm. right? And that's the Babylon religion. And so Babylon rides the beast of empires in Revelation 17 with range. She controls them. Right there, and the king is a divine representative of the god and that religion. Right, um, as the chief representative, and same with the queen as the mother goddess representative, as the visible ones for the invisible ones from the council of the gods in the throne rooms. Right, so you start to see how that Nephilim world order imagery starts to to look in terms of how they set themselves up for 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 governance, and so. This is going to be part of the end time religion and it's going to control it. So look for Babylon to come first. It's going to take the false prophets as well as, as catastrophes and wars to bring all of this about. She's going to be the glue that brings about the 10 kings. And she also is a geopolitical organization as well because it controls these kings. And it is an economic system because... The world does all her trade through Babylon, and she grows fabulously wealthy. She creates the beast system for Antichrist to take over, which is also part of his incentive to destroy her and set up his own religion, as Daniel 11 talks about. So we want to understand Babylon as a city we want to, that it's going to be located from, that's going to be destroyed, along with the religion. We need to understand it as a religion, past and uh, and present and future. It's a mystery religion, mystical religion, and the religion of the Nephilim and the Raphaim. We, we want to uh, understand it as a geopolitical organization and a commercial enterprise. And so when you look at it and as a precursor to the real beast system. So again, the beast is the empire of the end time. The beast is also antichrist. The beast is the commercial system with the mark that it's going to put in, and the beast will put in his own religion. 
after he destroys Babylon and moves it from what I think is Rome, and I make a very good case for that in the new book as well, and take you through the history of it. And uh, we'll move it to Sodom and Gomorrah, that's allegorically called in Revelation 11, or Jerusalem will be his home where he's crowned in the temple as the king of the world with the king of Jerusalem title. Wow. Um, okay, so let me let me ask you this. So so the one world religion, so we're looking at Babylon, you know, it's multifaceted there, holds different different uh different titles, maybe not titles, but holds different, you know, I ways that they are doing business, right? But on the religious side of it, and you had mentioned you mentioned Nimrod that brought back that brought back the the one world religion. So are you mm -hmm. alluding to the religion before the flood that the fallen angels taught their offspring? Yes. Yes. And so and, it, it, and when you start to look at some of the other overarching signs of the end time, it starts to make sense where it's, it's going to be like the days of Noah in all aspects so that religion would be the same both before and after the flood and it's the enochian mysticism from son of cain who develops mysticism is what's going to cross the flood and be implemented at babel with nimrod being the first recognized grand master of masonry uh, after the flood and a patriarch of, of the masonic uh, bloodlines and so yeah, you have that Enochian mysticism that is 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 the same as the Babel religion that's going to be the end time religion. So it's like the it's like the days of Noah. And it's also akin to what the book of Ecclesiastics says that we need to overlay on everything that happens throughout our history. That nothing is new under the sun, and what was will be again. And it just gets stronger as we get closer to the end time. And it's going to come to full uh, extremities in every sort of way in, in the last seven years. Yeah. So it's like a, you know, like, like you're, that's the birth pain. It's this pattern that keeps yeah. playing out again and again until all of a sudden, boom, it's, it's the birth happens. So uh, a couple of questions uh, on the Enochian mysticism part, because I know for a fact that some people Maybe not so much the ones that are on your face group, but some people get the, they're like, Enoch was, we were doing the religion of Enoch. Like what's this Enochian mysticism or, or they call it like uh, Enochian uh, magic per se. Can you yeah. tell us the, the, the reason why we're calling it Enochian and it's not Enoch? The, yeah, there's the two, Enoch. there's two Enochs in the book of Genesis and, what the polytheist forces do is they like to conflate the two into one. And uh, so you have Enoch, that son of Jared, that uh, walked with God and was taken to heaven at age 365. But there's an e a precursor to that Enoch, and that's Enoch, son of Cain. So we get some sort of idea what Enoch was all about in the Cainite line and some descendants who are also known as patriarchs in polytheism and the secret societies like Lamech. There's two Lamechs as well. Um, Lamech of, of the line of Cain and his offspring, Jubal, Jubal, Tubal, Cain, and Nama are 
ones who are expanding a knowledge base that uh, Enoch son of Cain developed. So Enoch, according to those records in the Polychronicon and in the history of Freemasonry, Adam learns a lot of knowledge in Eden to run this agricultural facility that goes from the Nile to the Euphrates. He's got orchards, he's got fields. And when you take the language back to Hebrew, you understand that these were orchards and grain fields and he had uh, domesticated animals and doing this all by himself until God actually gives him one helper <laughs> through Eve. <laughs> so he would have needed a lot of knowledge to do this. And it's this knowledge that the Gnostics say that Adam taught to Cain and Abel and Seth. And through Abel, he taught that knowledge to Enoch, who developed it into the seven sciences in an extraordinary way. And then it merged with the knowledge of the fallen angels. And to keep that illicit knowledge and the seven sacred sciences that we know as the seven liberal arts today, from the mundane, the Seth line, and the advancements that they were making, um, we're going to put it into an initiatory organization or a mystical religion. And that's why you have education and degrees, just you have that even in university today. And everything's done with rituals and things that have polytheist imagery all around. I won't go too far down that trail. Um, and out of the uh, mystery, out of the mystical religion, they're going to develop them into teaching societies for the noble elite only, and that's where the mystery schools come from. So that's why you have initiatory organizations on college campuses today. They have all sorts of different names from, you know, alpha to words like that to skull and bones. Yeah. So understand it's still part of the whole sort of hierarchy. And this is the religion that they want to save, that they develop to a level with the help of the fallen angels, the Nephilim, with the with the help of the Nephilim to a level that is going to parade the world into the first apocalypse by water. And so they want to save this knowledge. And so in their history, uh, the, the Masonic history, Enoch puts it, it, this information and religion into 36,525 books and they bury it under the great pyramid and nine volts stacked on top of each other, and a fellow by Hermes, or Hermine, as it's uh, his name is spelt in the Polychronicon, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the legends, as they come down through the oral history, um, finds the two pillars of Enoch are the two pillars of Lamech. Uh, same legend, just and understand Lamech and Enoch are patriarchs as well in the Canite Lane, and it has the ability, one, to survive a flood, one to survive a fire because they're not sure at when they start doing the preparation what kind of catastrophe it's going to be so obviously it's the one that floats <laughs> or the flood that he finds and that's the directions to this knowledge he that hermes goes to the uh, great pyramid uncovers it takes it back to nimrod where they start to initiate a thousand masons to create Babel City and Babel Tower and build the technology into it that they had uh, pre-flood. And we get a hint of that knowledge in that story where it's written in the Bible that with uh, one language, nothing 
the people at Babel will intend to do will be prevented from them doing. Such is the power of, of the knowledge. So much so that um, you could you can make a you can make a case through polytheist traditions that there was a technology involved in the tower that was going to able to let him to go into Hades and into heaven, as Antichrist will do in the end time, because he's an Antichrist figure too, right? And so uh, that knowledge is 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 very very great, and that's why. He, Nimrod is recognized in, in the secret societies as the first grand master to write the first constitution and implements Enochian mysticism at Babel, from which we get the post-Diluvian understanding of what the Babel religion is. It's the Babel, it's the Babylon religion of Babel, it's the Babel daughter of Babel religion out of Babylon and all the other beast empires, and called Babylon in the end time, and goes back to the root word Babel. Right. Wow. So so when when Babylon be initiates this one world religion and it's 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 happening, it's going to look like the old Enochian mysticism. Is it going to be is it going to look more like like acad like academia, or is it going to brand itself as, you know, worshiping angels i mean i in europe if you have an opinion or speculate on that is it is it gonna look like that or is it gonna look more like it's logical science you know yeah so in prehistory when this great powers are being used they're presented in images of wizards right magicians magi look for more of that and the and the prophet sort of aspect to come about it so the false prophets are going to have extraordinary power as well and this technology that they're accessing and doing there's going to be a combination of what you might be able to understand with the angelic technology and then there's going to be some of those who can use this technology uh that's far and above what day-to-day -day citizens are going to have access to um as we get closer to the end time and it's going to be really it's going to be presented in a way that this is the knowledge of the gods or the aliens however they want to present that um, and that's where it's going to be a little bit different um, because they don't want us to catch on i don't think as to you know what they're what they're really doing but it's going to be an initiatory religion uh, because it's a mystery religion. So you're going to see different branches as a universal religion. And at the lower levels, they can probably do local vernacular rituals and worship. Uh, but as you get higher up, they'll ha all have a council of elders that are all adepts for each of the churches that continue will report up, sort of like what you do with the Masonic lodges. And it will all be truly polytheist at the depth level so look for two different levels the one that the mundane um have and the one that the adepts have so if you look at freemasonry in that structure which is the lowest organization on the structure is you have three degrees to the old york right to adepthood or 33 degrees in the scottish right so it's the old york split up 11 times and all the knowledge and the allegories that the initiatives learn all the way up to 32nd degree Scottish and second degree and nine tenths <laughs> um, on the York side um, is meaningless. It's just superficial. Might be a little bit of meaning 
but it's not who you understand uh, to be the 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 gods that you worship and the and the true knowledge and the allegories that they've been teaching you only learn that when you get to a depth level so look at it like that but it's going to have to be able to reel in all of monotheism you can look at polytheism around the world and whether it's hinduism zoroastrianism whichever polytheist religion you want they just have different vernacular names for the same gods and some different versions of the same kinds of rituals at at, at the you know at the ritual level so it, it's it's islam it's judaism and it's christianity that they have to fold into that Gotcha. So it will have a bit of a gloss there at that level. So look for them to draft Moses as being an important figure. And with Moses, all three of those religions intersect at Moses. And Moses is very, very holy for Muslims. And, you know, you, you get the creation of the Arabic nations through Abraham as well. So look for them to draft him. Um, so they look at, the polytheists look at Moses as one of those great people, but not a monotheist. They look at Moses as being uh, educated at Heliopolis into the mysteries, yeah. became a, an adept royale. And then he took that religion, which the Essenes say is their religion of Heliopolis, that went rogue in the time of the monarchy with monotheism. And so, so they're going to say that went rogue, and they're going to bring false evidence out to say, hey, this was the real religion of Moses. So that's going to be an important figure. They're going to have to degrade Jesus to... a uh, prophet status which islam would accept and the jewish people would probably accept but certainly not as the son of god so they're going to have to bring out false evidence to chop that they're going to have to uh and they'll probably say that he survived from the cross and produced some offspring and put some bloodlines in for the pedigree of antichrist in there as well and they're they're also going to have to totally destroy uh, the Apostle Paul because okay. they believe he's the one who took Jesus from son of God status or son of man status, I'm sorry, to uh, deity status. It's not true biblically, but that's the case that they're going to make. So he's going to be the uh, the heretic that the Essenes in the Quran community would talk about. So, yeah, you're going to have to see a lot of things done, and it's still going to have some sort of Christian monotheist representation there, just as, you know, the false prophet beast, who also receives his power from anti, uh, from Satan, uh, you know, has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. So you're going to see some superficial gloss with that lamb imagery uh, of monotheism. So... Uh, look for uh, the false prophets to come along and say, if you don't convert to this universal religion, you're going to be destroyed from the face of the earth, just as Babylon, people of Babel, came together so they wouldn't be destroyed from the face of the earth. Yeah. Wow. Hey, Tori, you got anything? 
Well, I was just going to say, I don't know if either of you have read um, Frank Peretti's books. They're fiction. Um, they're like Christian fiction. But I actually just finished This Present Darkness, which is probably his biggest one. And it was written in the 80s. Um, but it's so relevant because this is exactly what he's talking about. And so it's like I can just see the ways. Um, it's it's like this small college town that just gets infiltrated by darkness, this present darkness, you know, but it's like spiritual forces of evil and it's in like professors and like college kids, but it's like there's the secret society with like the politicians and even like some of the pastors, you know, like the progressive pastor and like the police chief and um Anyway, yeah, I mean, just like insidious is the word, you know, but it's like there's the secret society. They're practicing this like mystic religion. They're channeling demons. It's very like new agey and it's very like, you know, even some of the Christians in the book are pulled into it just with some of the like, you know, yeah, it, new, like God is in all of us, but not in the way, you know what I mean? Like we're all God, God's in all of us. And it's like they use this language to pull people in and, you know, like healing and like Reiki healing and all of this stuff, but like, uh, oh, or they have like spirit guy. It's just stuff that like I hear about every day. Like this stuff is, mm -hmm. is becoming normal around us, you know, but it's like someone will have some encounter with like a spirit guide, but then like they see them for who they really are. And it's, it's hor horrifying, you know, and it's like, they're being dragged to hell. And anyway, but I'm just like, oh, this is like how, this is how they're going to do it. Yeah. And, you know, we know that, um, you know, in Jesus' chronology in Matthew 24, and it's good to add in Mark 13 and Luke 17 and 21 for the additional details, but there's a time where there's going to be a falling away, as Second Thessalonians talks about, and that's the scandaliso. They're being seduced away by this religion of Babylon. And with everything that's going on with the false prophets and the catastrophes, and they're going to be destroyed from the face of the earth, you're going to have families turning against each other and turning each other in when when this starts to happen and so there's going to be a lot of people that get deceived with the information that they're going to provide them with or with us with and so much so that uh, even the elect would be deceived by the time antichrist comes if that were possible and it is. And so that's why Jesus promises to save us from the time of the year of the Lord's wrath, but also the time of trial, as uh, Revelation 3 talks about, uh, or from temptation. And that's the hour of temptation. That's the hour uh, that is a very important word that Jesus talks about at the hour of his coming. That's the same Greek word, hora. And that's the hour that's used in Revelation 17 uh, when the ten kings give their power over to Antichrist at the midpoint. That's the same hour uh, that 1 John 2.18 talks about where there's multiple Antichrists. You know it's going to be the last time. Those are the ten kings and the Antichrist and that time where time goes back to Hora hour again it's so you can translate it in different ways but i think hour would have been a better translation there that's the hour that babylon is destroyed in revelation 14 
when you get the summary of the last three and a half years, and then twice hour comes up again in the destruction of Revelation 18 of Babylon. That's at the, the hour that we're going to be uh, saved from, because even the elect will be deceived at the deceptions that are coming. So Babylon is going to be strong. Antichrist was uh, producing his Messiah credentials, including saving us from uh, Armageddon, from the Armageddon war that he'll take credit for. Uh, it won't be Armageddon, but it'll be, it will look like Armageddon. That's how strong the delusion is. And, you know, you have like the false prophet who's going to be like, uh, like the Elijah bringing fire down from heaven on behalf of Antichrist. And you'll have all these other false prophets before who can do powerful things as well so the deception is going to be absolutely unbelievable and before antichrist comes revelation 9 opens up and all of those things out of the abyss come out hmm. it's just it's, it's the time of the three woes it's like we can't imagine the deception that is coming and so the only thing we can do is is learn more put our armor on try and help people understand when you start to see some of this coming close together this is the time this is the fig tree generation and i think we're in the fig tree generation and i think we're in uh, the sorrows right now we're not we're not at the seals at this point in time but you start to see things come together with the uh, catastrophes of the sorrows the pestilence the famine uh, the earthquakes, wars and rumors of wars, and then as the book of Luke adds in, probably the surging of the seas. And so that's going to get stronger. And so when we see what's going on in the Middle East today with uh, with Gaza and Israel, that's just a birth pang. It's not leading us to World War Three yet. There's way too much to be developed yet, but look for more of that to come along as well. And so... We've got a long ways to go before the first seal produces 25% destruction mm -hmm. or the, the, not the first seal. The, uh, the seal is opened and, and uh, as a consequence of the seven seals, we're going to get 25% uh, destruction. Those are the same catastrophes. Just as it's the same catastrophes in the trumpets, that's 33%. And the same catastrophes that are in the wrath bowls, which would be 100%, but Jesus shortens and comes in to stop what is going on, lest all flesh be destroyed. Hmm. Wow. Hey, Gary, I can only assume that this is why you do what you do, because you're, you got to let people know what's what's going to happen and the deception that's going to come. Otherwise, we're toast. You know, if we're just going to church on Sunday, you know, we're not that doesn't make that doesn't necessarily mean that we're good from the deception you know and uh, well it's probably preparing us for deception uh and 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 i should probably you know explain that a little bit i think uh, good things are taught in the church but the whole bible isn't taught and the context of what they teach isn't being taught along with what they teach. And what I mean by that is they don't teach prehistory or prophecy. Mm -hmm. So people aren't going to be ready for this. So just when we need our leaders of the church the most, they're going to let us down. Mm -hmm. So it's up to us to learn about things and to 
help people. And it's one of the motivations for writing book too, because this is a book targeted at Christians. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one yeah. thing that uh, that we we mentioned on the show quite often that like, why why do certain people, and I know Tori talks about this, why do certain people have such a hard time and they'll just, you know, hey, this is just all conspiracy nonsense. Right, Tori? I mean, we were just talking about that the other yeah. day. Yeah, like why do some people have such a hard time accepting that this stuff could be true and they just want to like immediately swat it away and say like, oh, you're just... Yeah, like well, they want to believe the teachers as opposed to the word of God. And they've been well prepared to do that. You're brought up in schools to listen to your teacher, not to the parents. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh your same thing that happens in church. And the priests and the pastors and the ministers, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, their seminary schools do not teach prehistory or prophecy. And they are told, do not teach this. And they are told, you tell people who want to know about that to leave. And that's what happens. And so what they do teach is good, but it's half the story or one third of the story. And yes, faith is all we need. But if the elect could be deceived, and if this is indeed the fig tree generation, they're not helping their flocks. They're preparing their slot, their flocks for deception. Yeah. You know, I really think it's going to be so important. Uh, it already is, but like, I think it's, be it's going to become so much more important to, to find a pastor and a church community, specifically like the leader of a church who is not swayed by like the social pressure, who isn't answering to someone above him and above him who, you know, like, <laughs> Because I feel like that's what happens. It's like the funding, it's the politics, it's the social yeah. aspect. And so they shy away from this stuff because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to yeah. lose their job. Well, so I, under I understand the prophecy side. I don't, I don't understand the prehistory side. You, know, yeah. you can either, you know, you either believe in what the Bible says or you don't. And you don't apologize for it and you don't try and rationalize it away. I understand with how we may not fully understand how prophecy is going to uh, come about, but that doesn't mean we ought not to teach prophecy. I would just encourage people who are into prophecy is try and stay away from the standard eschological approaches because they are preconceived conclusions. And they do a lot of things that you can recognize that there are preconceived conclusions, and there's many different approaches. And one of them is, is they ignore inconvenient passages. That's a red flag. Yeah. If they have to ignore a passage, there's a problem with, with their approach. If they, do, if they want to put what Jesus said around what the prophet said, that's a problem. You put all the prophets and all the Bible around what Jesus said, not vice versa. If they apologize or try and reinvent what Jesus said, that's a problem. And so if you put everything around what Jesus said with the chronology that he provides, all the conflicts are going to disappear, including all the Old Testament prophets. So and there's and I explain my approach in the new book and I demonstrate it in the last a third of the books. You can't do everything on prophecy, but you can show how it just fits together, especially with the context of prehistory, which I outline in the first uh, half of the book. So um, 
what I, it was sort of a, an, an epiphany for me is, is I'm tired of trying to apologize for this approach or that approach, because I just can't ignore passages that, that they can't explain. And all they do is they just say, well, it doesn't mean that. What do you mean? It doesn't right. mean that. Here's what it says. You can't rewrite it. Well, they have to try and rewrite it because they can't fit it into their, their chronology. Right. Yeah. Ag yeah. Agree agreed. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot of end time systems and most of them, most of them have a bunch of holes in them, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I go, I've gone on some shows and, and I said, they said, well, you, you know, that's all fine and dandy until you get into the book of revelation. And I'm going, well, what's the problem? It says, well, it's so allegorical and it doesn't fit with uh, what you say is Jesus chronology. I said, well, I guess that would have to be impossible. <laughs> and uh, they say, well, why is that? I said, well, because it says right in revelation one, one to two, that this is the testimony of Jesus Christ given to the angel to provide to John. It cannot contradict with what he said. It has to fit. It just has to. <laughs> and so it, so it either adds to what he already said. Yeah. I mean, is that safe to say? I mean, if it doesn't sure, make sense, because it doesn't make sense in their system, but it, it must add to something that he said before or give more insight on it. Well, it, it does give a lot more detail on, on some of the, because uh, he gives us a template mm -hmm. in his oration, and that gives us a lot more of, of, of the detail. Uh, so, and, and if you look at, you know, Revelation uses, you know, it's, it's pretty much linear. It's got a couple nuances in it where you have what's going on in heaven in preparation for what's about to happen on earth. Um, and you've got the seven churches that are before the start of the end time. Mm -hmm. But I would also submit to people that it also has an overlay of, prophecies that hasn't been fulfilled uh, in the end time. So it's kind of like a dual prophecy that I explain in, in, in the new book. And that once you understand the separation of the seven churches and then how you get about at the last seven years with Revelation 6 starting, either just before or just after, and then right up to Revelation 14 halfway through, that's the first half. You get a summary for the second half. And then you get the details of the second half in Revelation, starting in Revelation 15 through 19. And then you get the millennium. And it uses a word for the order that the events are coming in. It's, we get it as and, and it's hahi uh, in, in Hebrew. And it means, you know, at that time, it's the when. It ha happens immediately after. That starts to really erode at some of the rewriting of chronology that some of the eschatological approaches like to use, particularly as you roll into uh, preterism and into the millennium and how it just doesn't work when you take it back to understanding the Greek. And Jesus uses a similar kind of word, but more definite because it's the blueprint and it's the Greek word toda. And it is the when, it is then, it is at that time. And he uses it in all three of the uh, orations in, in, in Mark, Luke, and Matthew, and it's giving you the chronology. So just let it fit, just slide everything in. Nice, yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Um, so like the very last paragraph of Revelation, and yeah, people forget Revelation is 
a book with red letters, so like Jesus's words in it. But um, just this is the very last chunk of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this uh, the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the place described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So yeah, like pastors cannot be taking away the words of revelation, you know? Yep, they cannot. And then there's some approaches that would say, well, in, in the book of Revelation where John uh, is taken up to heaven, that's a sign of the rapture. I'm going, really? It doesn't say rapture there. And uh, by the way, it's, uh, you know, I like to inform people that he's in the spirit of vision at that time. It's like we have a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament where visions are. You wouldn't do those as rapture. Um, so he's in the spirit of the vision that he's receiving. He's not being raptured. Oh, and let's see, what else does he have? He has to deliver the letters to the seven churches when he comes back. So you're saying he's raptured and then he come back and then he's going to be raptured again. <laughs> it's like uh, how, you know, you're adding information in there that that's not there to justify a timing. Uh, let the Bible lay out the timing. Don't rewrite it. Yeah, it makes me think of the Princess Bride, and he's like, "You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means." Good rapture, maybe. I don't know. But... Yeah, that's um, that's really good. So, so Gary, um, you know, if you don't mind, we're just gonna we're we're gonna go ahead and wrap up. We'll just go ahead package this as just a regular podcast. I is probably on our end something that we didn't do. We didn't let enough people know. Um, so we apologize that nobody showed up. But, but I got it. I want to ask you something in closing because you gave such an eloquent case. I'm sorry. You gave such an eloquent case of the Nephilim world order. And just in light of, you know, everybody's talking about it in light of the Tucker Carlson, Roseanne Barr conversation, I think we can search this video and get an explanation of the new world order in Nephilim because Roseanne Barr said that they were the Anunnaki from outer space, and she told Tucker that. And here you are, you eloquently laid it out using historical text and, you know, prehistory that is, you know, well known. Um, so I thank you for that. Now, why why couldn't it be Anunnaki from outer space? Like, where would that even come from? Well, that comes from the ancient alien mythos. And, uh, you know, you have Sitchin and all of those, uh, uh, you know, other writers. I'm trying to think of the name of the writer of Chariot of the Gods. But, you know, anybody who watches the History Channel will know ancient aliens. And so Anunnaki is looked upon in the alien mythos as being a type of alien, right? So advanced 
alien. And they're the ones who come here, according to Sitchin writings, and create humans through DNA technology and types of animals that are that are already here. So in the alien mythos is what they do is they lower the, the power and being status of angels to just being advanced aliens. And you can call Anunnaki accurate as aliens, except when you start to really add on to it, because they're not of the physical world. They were spirit beings from heaven. And the ones that she's referring to are the fallen Anunnaki. And the Anunnaki uh, of Sumeria, as the writings talk about it, um, have the Anunnaki as watchers. And again, in the alien mythos, they will call them watchers, but alien watchers. But these are the watchers, just as watchers shows up in the Bible. Uh, in Daniel 4, four times, Iyer, Watcher, um, you know, the second part of Sayer for Satyr for a degraded fallen seraphim watcher, uh, a goat god. Um, and Watchers are four groups of angels that are surrounding the throne. And they are the sons of God as well as the Watchers are understood in the Book of Enoch to have produced most of the giants. They, Anunnaki, in Sumerian mythology, also mated with human females and created Anunnaki of the earth, watchers of the earth, giants. Gilgamesh would be a classic example of that as uh, being the son of this from a from a female god at this time, a goddess, the fertility goddess Nin, and Lugalbanda, king of Uruk. I go through a lot of this in, in, in the new book as well. And the Anunnaki um, also come from Nibiru and they try, they translate Nibiru as a different planet. And again, each of the old languages, their words would have multiple meanings. So you have to select the right choice. It could mean a planet. And it does mean a planet in the context, but the planet, it's in a location. Nibiru is in the planet that is Earth. Hmm. And it also means the underworld. It's as in Hades, as in the other world, as in Anwin, as in Argatha, as in Sheol. And that is where their home is. Not on another planet, but in the planet. So they're right uh, here. They're right here. Yeah. And that's, and so Sitchin, I mean, he translated directly from the cuneiform tablets. And he was no doubt a genius, but he's also a Gnostic and a Freemason. Yeah. <laughs> so he has a biases that he's used there and, you know, to mislead people. And, uh, you know, uh, most of the other experts, and you, know, you can take experts at whatever opinion they want to do, but they don't agree with that as being a different planet whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, and where it's used, it's being used in conjunction with underworld settings and uh, descriptions. So the context would suggest that that's been just uh, another reimagination of, of the text. So there are Anunnaki, they are coming back. They probably will disguise themselves as advanced um aliens and there's a hierarchy to the aliens just as there's a hierarchy to the angels and their spurious offspring 
And so expect that to be all part of that watcher alien sort of deception. So just as we're starting to see information come out about aliens and UFOs, uh, expect that they're going to twist that information in preparation for all of these beings that are coming back and will be walking amongst us again, just as they did in the days of Noah. Wow. Well, yeah, they have, they have enough, enough people, you know, enough apologists, I guess, you know, talking about it like Roseanne Barr and yep. the ancient alien guys of, you know, when this does happen, this is, this is who they are. And then you have us on the other side that are like, no, 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 we have, we actually have the, the deeper and more true history yeah. than even you guys have. And I guess that's yeah. why they got to take us out. That's why they got to get rid of the Christians because yep. we actually have a more coherent explanation. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes the Anaki are also called the Gigi gods of okay. heaven. Uh, and I'll also take that back in the new book because I, I really like to get into this stuff. I'll take it back to the Sumerian word for I, as in to watch, which is makes up most of the word agigi for the watcher. So again, if you let the language in whatever language support itself, it, it, it'll be relatively consistent coming out of prehistory in terms of what they write about, uh, simply because they weren't uh, making it up. They were writing it down, and we just have to understand that uh, nothing is new under the sun, and uh, we're we're going to see these beings in the not too distant future. Agreed, agreed, absolutely. Anything, anything in closing, Tori? You got for Gary Wayne? Well, I would just like to add for Gary Wayne and for anyone else who's listening. Um, so, like in the book, this present darkness. I just think you know, this stuff sounds really bleak. It sounds like we're up against insurmountable odds in the future, but we're not. And the prayers of the righteous remnant are so powerful. And like our prayers move things, I believe, you know, like in the unseen realm and the seen realm. Um, and anyway, it matters. And I, I don't think the odds are insurmountable. I think it's going to be scary. So not to downplay that, but like, we're not going to lose ultimately you know so i think like don't lose hope don't get overwhelmed yep. by this stuff um jesus wins and yeah and prepare for tribulation yeah because we're going to go through it yeah for sure we're never promised to to be spared from the hard stuff jesus wasn't so why would we be but yeah yeah know know what's coming know what's coming be ready for it and also know that you know, we're going to have, we're going to have a grace, uh, to be able to get through that, you know, um, which I, I fullheartedly believe. And it's, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate your work so much, Gary. I am so excited for the second book. Um, I, I almost can't stand it, but we're going to, I'll make sure that I, I, I go back retroactively and add in the links, um, to the interviews we have with you thus far. Um, so we can we can have those in there and um yeah so good good luck with the new book gary and uh we'll we'll uh, be reaching out to you again soon hey they came down to top vanity brought the proliferation of humanity hey fallen sons of the most high god took advantage of the planet he made forming a holy alliance of evil and look at the daughters of adam and vain then the flood rain came to restore his creational order to how we arranged
Put the disembodied spirit to the giants, still want a war, still want to kill in the court. see the blood of the innocent spill on the floor. That's a demoniac and the kind of gets you a combined the healer restores. Image bearers in his second chance when he coming back, cause he bringing a sword. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah, welcome to Camp Herman. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah, welcome to Camp Herman.